This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Bullfinch's Mythology The Age of Fable by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 29 Adventures of Ulysses. The Lotus Eaters, Cyclops, Circe, Sirens, Scylla and Charybdis, Calypso. Return of Ulysses The romantic poem of the Odyssey is now to engage our attention. It narrates the wanderings of Ulysses, Odysseus in the Greek language, in his return from Troy to his own kingdom Ithaca. From Troy the vessels first made land at Ismarus, city of the Sisonians, where, in a skirmish with the inhabitants, Ulysses lost six men from each ship. Sailing thence, they were overtaken by a storm, which drove them for nine days along the sea, till they reached the country of the lotus-eaters. Here, after watering, Ulysses sent three of his men to discover who the inhabitants were. These men, on coming among the lotus-eaters, were kindly entertained by them, and were given some of their own food, the lotus-plant, to eat. The effect of this food was such that those who partook of it lost all thoughts of home and wished to remain in that country. It was by main force that Ulysses dragged these men away, and he was even obliged to tie them under the benches of the ships. Footnote. Tennyson, in The Lotus Eaters, has charmingly expressed the dreamy, languid feeling which the lotus food is said to have produced. How sweet it were! Here in the downward stream, with half-shut eyes ever to seem, falling asleep in a half-dream, to dream and dream, like yonder amber light which would not leave the mere-bush on the height, to hear each other's whispered speech, eating the lotus day by day, to watch the crisping ripples on the beach, and tender curving lines of creamy spray, to lend our hearts and spirits wholly to the influence of mild-minded melancholy, to muse and brood and live again in memory, with those old faces of our infancy heaped over with a mound of grass, to handfuls of white dust shut in an urn of brass. They next arrived at the country of the Cyclops. The Cyclops were giants who inhabited an island of which they were the only possessors. The name means round eye, and these giants were so called because they had but one eye, and that placed in the middle of the forehead. They dwelt in caves and fed on the wild productions of the island, and on what their flocks yielded, for they were shepherds. Ulysses left the main body of his ships at anchor, and with one vessel went to the Cyclops's island to explore for supplies. He landed with his companions, carrying with them a jar of wine for a present and coming to a large cave they entered it, and finding no one within examined its contents. They found it stored with the richest of the flock, quantities of cheese, pails and bowls of milk, lambs and kids in their pens, all in nice order. Presently arrived the master of the cave, Polyphemus, bearing an immense bundle of firewood, which he threw down before the cavern's mouth. He then drove into the cave the sheep and goats to be milked, and, entering, rolled to the cave's mouth an enormous rock, that twenty oxen could not draw. 
Next he sat down and milked his ewes, preparing a part for cheese, and setting the rest aside for his customary drink. Then, turning round his great eye, he discerned the strangers, and growled out to them, demanding who they were, and where from. Ulysses replied most humbly, stating that they were Greeks, from the great expedition that had lately won so much glory in the conquest of Troy, that they were now on their way home, and finished by imploring his hospitality in the name of the gods. Polyphemus deigned no answer, but reaching out his hand seized two of the Greeks, whom he hurled against the side of the cave, and dashed out their brains. He proceeded to devour them with great relish, and having made a hearty meal, stretched himself out on the floor to sleep. Ulysses was tempted to seize the opportunity, and plunge his sword into him as he slept, but recollected that it would only expose them all to certain destruction, as the rock, with which the giant had closed up the door, was far beyond their power to remove, and they would therefore be in hopeless imprisonment. Next morning the giant seized two more of the Greeks, and dispatched them in the same manner as their companions, feasting on their flesh till no fragment was left. He then moved away the rock from the door, drove out his flocks, and went out, carefully replacing the barrier after him. When he was gone, Ulysses planned how he might take vengeance for his murdered friends, and effect his escape with his surviving companions. He made his men prepare a massive bar of wood, cut by the cyclops for a staff, which they found in the cave. They sharpened the end of it, and seasoned it in the fire, and hid it under the straw on the cavern floor. Then four of the boldest were selected, with whom Ulysses joined himself as a fifth. The Cyclops came home at evening, rolling away the stone, and drove in his flock as usual. After milking them, and making his arrangements as before, he seized two more of Ulysses' companions, and dashed their brains out, and made his evening meal upon them, as he had the others. After he had supped, Ulysses, approaching him, handed him a bowl of wine, saying, Cyclops, this is wine. Taste and drink after thy meal of man's flesh. He took and drank it, and was hugely delighted with it, and called for more. Ulysses supplied him once again, which pleased the giant so much, that he promised him as a favour, that he should be the last of the party devoured. He asked him his name, to which Ulysses replied, my name is no man. After his supper the giant lay down to repose, and was soon sound asleep. Then Ulysses, with his four select friends, thrust the end of the stake into the fire, till it was all one burning coal. Then poising it exactly above the giant's only eye, they buried it deeply into the socket, twirling it round as a carpenter does his auger. The howling monster with his outcry filled the cavern, and Ulysses, with his aids, nimbly got out of his way, and concealed themselves in the cave. He, bellowing, called aloud on all the Cyclopses dwelling in the caves around him, far and near. They on his cry flocked round the den, and inquired what grievous hurt had caused him to sound such an alarm, and break their slumbers. He replied, O friends, I die, and no man gives the blow. They answered, if no man hurts thee, it is the stroke of Jove, and thou must bear it. So saying, they left him groaning. 
Next morning the Cyclops rolled away the stone to let his flock out to pasture, but planted himself in the door of the cave to feel of all as they went out, that Ulysses and his men should not escape with them. But Ulysses had made his men harness the rams of the flock three abreast, with osiers, which they found on the floor of the cave. To the middle ram of the three, one of the Greeks suspended himself, so protected by the exterior rams on either side. As they passed, the giant felt of the animals' backs and sides, but never thought of their bellies. So the men all passed safe, Ulysses himself being on the last one that passed. When they had got a few paces from the cavern, Ulysses and his friends released themselves from their rams, and drove a good part of the flock down to the shore to their boat. They pushed them aboard with all haste, then pushed off from the shore, and when at a safe distance Ulysses shouted out, Cyclops, the gods have well requited thee for thy atrocious deeds. Know it is Ulysses to whom thou owest thy shameful loss of sight. The Cyclops, hearing this, seized a rock from that projected from the side of the mountain, and rending it from its bed, he lifted it high in the air, then exerting all his force, hurled it in the direction of the voice. Down came the mass, just clearing the vessel's stern. The ocean, at the plunge of the huge rock, heaved the ship towards the land, so that it barely escaped being swamped by the waves. When they had with the utmost difficulty pulled off shore, Ulysses was about to hail the giant again, but his friends besought him not to do so. He could not forbear, however, letting the giant know that they had escaped his missile, but waited till they had reached a safer distance than before. The giant answered them with curses, but Ulysses and his friends plied their oars vigorously, and soon regained their companions. Ulysses next arrived at the island of Aeolus. To this monarch Jupiter had instructed the government of the winds, to send them forth or retain them at his will. He treated Ulysses hospitably, and at his departure gave him, tied up in a leathern bag with a silver string, such winds as might be hurtful and dangerous, commanding fair winds to blow the barks towards their country. Nine days they sped before the wind, and all that time Ulysses had stood at the helm, without sleep. At last, quite exhausted, he lay down to sleep. While he slept, the crew conferred together about the mysterious bag, and concluded it must contain treasures, given by the hospitable king Aeolus to their commander. Tempted to secure some portion for themselves, they loosed the string, when immediately the winds rushed forth. The ships were driven far from their course, and back again to the island they had just left. Aeolus was so indignant at their folly that he refused to assist them further, and they were obliged to labour over their course once more by means of their oars. THE LESTRIGONIANS Their next adventure was with the barbarous tribe of Lestrigonians. The vessels all pushed into the harbour, tempted by the secure appearance of the cove, completely landlocked. Only Ulysses moored his vessel without. As soon as the Lestrigonians found the ships completely in their power, they attacked them, heaving huge stones which broke and overturned them, and with their spears dispatched the seamen as they struggled in the water. All the vessels with their crews were destroyed, except Ulysses' own ship, which had remained outside, and finding no safety but in flight, he exhorted his men to ply their oars vigorously, and they escaped. 
With grief for their slain companions mixed with joy at their own escape, they pursued their way till they arrived at the Eian Isle, where Circe dwelt, the daughter of the sun. Landing here, Ulysses climbed a hill, and gazing round saw no signs of habitation except in one spot at the centre of the island, where he perceived a palace embowered with trees. He sent forward one half of his crew, under the command of Eurylochus, to see what prospect of hospitality they might find. As they approached the palace they found themselves surrounded by lions, tigers, and wolves, not fierce, but tamed by Circe's art, for she was a powerful magician. All these animals had once been men, but had been changed by Circe's enchantments into the form of beasts. The sounds of soft music were heard from within, and a sweet female voice singing. Eurylochus called aloud, and the goddess came forth and invited them in. They all gladly entered, except Eurylochus, who suspected danger. The goddess conducted her guests to a seat, and had them served with wine and other delicacies. When they had feasted heartily, she touched them one by one with her wand, and they immediately changed into swine, in head, body, voice, and bristles, yet with their intellects as before. She shut them in her sties, and supplied them with acorns, and such other things as swine love. Eurylochus hurried back to the ship, and told the tale. Ulysses thereupon determined to go himself, and try if, by any means he might, deliver his companions. As he strode onward alone, he met a youth, who addressed him familiarly, appearing to be acquainted with his adventures. He announced himself as Mercury, and informed Ulysses of the arts of Circe, and of the danger of approaching her. As Ulysses was not to be dissuaded from his attempt, Mercury provided him with a sprig of the plant molly, of wonderful power to resist sorceries, and instructed him how to act. Ulysses proceeded, and reaching the palace was courteously received by Circe, who entertained him as she had done with his companions, and after he had eaten and drank, touched him with her wand, saying, Hence, seek the sty and wallow with thy friends. But he, instead of obeying, drew his sword and rushed upon her with fury in his countenance. She fell on her knees and begged for mercy. He dictated a solemn oath that she would release his companions and practice no further harm against him or them, and she repeated it, at the same time promising to dismiss them all in safety after hospitably entertaining them. She was as good as her word. The men were restored to their shapes, the rest of the crew summoned from the shore, and the whole magnificently entertained day after day, till Ulysses seemed to have forgotten his native land, and to have reconciled himself to an inglorious life of ease and pleasure. At length his companions recalled him to nobler sentiments, and he received their admonition gratefully. Circe aided their departure, and instructed them how to pass safely by the coast of the Sirens. The Sirens were sea-nymphs, who had the power of charming by their song all who heard them, so that the unhappy mariners were irresistibly impelled to cast themselves into the sea to their destruction. Circe directed Ulysses to fill the ears of his seamen with wax, so that they should not hear the strain, and to cause himself to be bound to the mast, and his people to be strictly enjoined, whatever he might do or say, by no means to release him till they should have passed the Siren's island. Ulysses obeyed these directions. He filled the ears of his people with wax, and suffered them to bind him with cords firmly to the mast. 
As they approached the Siren's Island, the sea was calm, and over the waters came the notes of music so ravishing and attractive that Ulysses struggled to get loose, and by cries and signs to his people begged to be released. But they, obedient to his previous orders, sprang forward and bowed him still faster. They held on their course, and the music grew fainter, till it ceased to be heard. When, with joy, Ulysses gave his companions the signal to unseal their ears, and they relieved him from his bonds. The imagination of a modern poet, Keats, has discovered for us the thoughts that passed through the brains of the victims of Circe, after their transformation. In his Endymion, he represents one of them, a monarch in the guise of an elephant, addressing the sorceress in human language, thus, I sue not for my happy crown again, I sue not for my phalanx on the plain, I sue not for my lone, my widowed wife, I sue not for my ruddy drops of life, my children fair, my lovely girls and boys, I will forget them, I will pass these joys, ask naught so heavenward, so too, too high, only I pray, as fairest boon, to die, to be delivered from this cumbrous flesh, from this gross, detestable, filthy mesh, and merely given to the cold, bleak air. Have mercy, goddess! Circe, feel my prayer! Scylla and Charybdis Ulysses had been warned by Circe of the two monsters, Scylla and Charybdis. We have already met with Scylla in the story of Glaucus, and remember that she was once a beautiful maiden, and was changed into a snaky monster by Circe. She dwelt in a cave high up on the cliff, from whence she was accustomed to thrust forth her long necks, for she had six heads, and in each of her mouths to seize one of the crew of every vessel passing within reach. The other terror, Charybdis, was a gulf, nearly on a level with the water. Thrice each day the water rushed into a frightful chasm, and thrice was disgorged. Any vessel coming near the whirlpool, when the tide was rushing in, must inevitably be engulfed. Not Neptune himself could save it. On approaching the haunt of the dread monsters, Ulysses kept strict watch to discover them. The roar of the waters as Charybdis engulfed them gave warning at a distance, but Scylla could nowhere be discerned. While Ulysses and his men watched with anxious eyes the dreadful whirlpool, they were not equally on their guard from the attack of Scylla, and the monster, darting forth her snaky heads, caught six of his men, and bore them away, shrieking, to her den. It was the saddest sight Ulysses had yet seen, to behold his friends thus sacrificed, and hear their cries, unable to afford them any assistance. Circe had warned him of another danger. After passing Scylla and Charybdis, the next land he would make was Thurinkia, an island whereupon were pastured the cattle of Hyperon the sun, tended by his daughters Lampetia and Pethusa. These flocks must not be violated, whatever the wants of the voyagers might be. If this injunction was transgressed, destruction was sure to fall on the offenders. Ulysses would willingly have passed the island of the sun without stopping but his companions so urgently pleaded for the rest and refreshment that would be derived from anchoring and passing the night on shore, that Ulysses yielded. He bound them, however, with an oath that they would not touch one of the animals of the sacred flocks and herds, 
but content themselves with what provision they yet had left of the supply which Circe had put on board. So long as this supply lasted, the people kept their oath. But contrary winds detained them at the island for a month, and after consuming all their stock of provisions, they were forced to rely upon the birds and fishes they could catch. Famine pressed them, and at length one day, in the absence of Ulysses, they slew some of the cattle, vainly attempting to make amends for the deed, by offering from them a portion to the offended powers. Ulysses, on his return to the shore, was horror-struck at perceiving what they had done, and the more so on account of the portentous signs which followed. The skins crept on the ground, and the joints of meat lowed on the spits while roasting. The wind became fair, they sailed from the island. They had not gone far when the weather changed, and a storm of thunder and lightning ensued. A stroke of lightning shattered their mast, which, in its fall, killed the pilot. At last the vessel itself came to pieces, the keel and mast floating side by side. Ulysses formed of them a raft, to which he clung, and the wind changing, the waves bore him to Calypso's island. All the rest of the crew perished. The following allusion to the topics we have just been considering is from Milton's Commerce, line 252. I have often heard my mother Circe and the sirens three, Amidst the flowery curtled nadies, Culling their potent herbs and baneful drugs, Who as they sung would take the prisoned soul, And lap it in Elysium. Scylla wept, and chide her barking waves into attention, And fell Charybdis murmured soft applause. Scylla and Charybdis have become proverbial, to denote opposite dangers which beset one's course. Calypso Calypso was a sea-nymph, which name denotes a numerous class of female divinities of lower rank, yet sharing many of the attributes of the gods. Calypso received Ulysses hospitably, entertained him magnificently, became enamoured of him, and wished to retain him forever, conferring on him immortality. But he persisted in his resolution to return to his country and his wife and son. Calypso at last received the command of Jove to dismiss him. Mercury brought the message to her, and found her in her grotto, which is thus described by Homer. A garden vine, luxuriant on all sides, mantled the spacious cavern. Cluster hung, profuse. Four fountains of serenest lymph, their sinuous course pursuing side by side strayed all around, and everywhere appeared meadows of softest verdure, purple to her with violets. It was a scene to fill a god from heaven with wonder and delight. Calypso, with much reluctance, proceeded to obey the commands of Jupiter. She supplied Ulysses with the means of constructing a raft, provisioned it well for him, and gave him a favouring gale. He sped on his course prosperously for many days, till at length, when in sight of land, a storm arose that broke his mast, and threatened to rend the raft asunder. In this crisis he was seen by a compassionate sea-nymph, who, in the form of a cormorant, alighted on the raft, and presented him a girdle, directing him to bind it beneath his breast, and if he should be compelled to trust himself to the waves, it would buoy him up, and enable him by swimming to reach the land. Fenelon, in his Romance of Telemachus, has given us the adventures of the son of Ulysses, in search of his father. 
Among other places at which he arrived, following on his father's footsteps, was Calypso's isle, and, as in the former case, the goddess tried every art to keep him with her, and offered to share her immortality with him. But Minerva, who in the shape of Mentor, accompanied him and governed all his movements, made him repel her allurements, and when no other means of escape could be found, the two friends leaped from a cliff into the sea, and swam to a vessel which lay becalmed offshore. Byron alludes to this leap of Telemachus and Mentor in the following stanza. But not in silence pass Calypso's isles, the sister tenants of the middle deep. There for the wary still a haven smiles, though the fair goddess long has ceased to weep, and o'er her cliffs a fruitless watch to keep from him who dared prefer a mortal bride. Here too is boy essayed the dreadful leap, stern mentor urged from high to yonder tide. While thus of both bereft, the nymph queen doubly sighed. End of chapter 29